On this episode of The Wharton Current, I sat down with Wilson Ma, a leader at Lifecycle, one of the preeminent lithium-ion battery recycling companies in North America. Join us as we talk about battery recycling, which a lot of you know is one of my favorite things, and how Lifecycle fits into the sector. At the end, Wilson shares some great career advice, including my favorite line of, never take a job you can always get. Welcome to the Wharton Current. Hey, Joel, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So to start off, how about you tell us a little bit about Lifecycle and how you joined them? Yeah, so Lifecycle is really an urban mining company where our resource primarily comes from recycling lithium-ion batteries. So we sit at the intersection of three megatrends, the first being the electrification of everything. So we know cell phones, laptops, EVs are being electrified. Even things in Canada, such as snowblowers, are being electrified as well. So there's a huge megatrend there. The second is really around ESG, environment, social, and governance, particularly around the circular economy. So really driving that 360 view of the entire loop is very important. And third, and more importantly now, is there's the localization of critical mineral supply chains. And so we're seeing a deglobalization of a lot of uh, critical minerals. And so it's becoming more and more important to have a strong and secure domestic supply of lithium, nickel, cobalt, among others. So the company Lifecycle was founded back in 2016 by Ajay Kochar and Kim Johnston. Both are engineers by training, and they've spent a large amount of time in the engineering consulting industry. And so taking that knowledge, they've identified the gap in terms of being able to recycle end-of-life lithium-ion batteries and thus the genesis of this company about six years ago. So, you know, I graduated from my MBA back in 2013 and following the MBA, I joined a very traditional company, Emerson Electric out of St. Louis. And uh, after about eight years, I felt the itch to make a change to a growth company. And so that's kind of what led me here to Lifecycle. That's awesome. And how did you find them? And then how did you decide to join at this, you know, this particular stage of the company? Yeah, I joined the company before we went public. So we were a much smaller company and a lot of our employees back then joined through referrals. So I actually came into contact with Lifecycle through our current chief strategy officer. And it was through a series of coffee chats that drove my interest. When the posting emerged for a corporate development role, I jumped on it and here I am. That's really exciting. So I know the unique and innovative thing about Lifecycle is the hub and spoke model. Could you explain that? And then to the extent you can explain how they came up with the idea for that and even any challenges along the way of developing that structure. Absolutely. So lithium-ion batteries inherently are very heavy. They're very bulky and they're very dangerous from a high voltage standpoint. And so the logic behind that is we have to be able to process the batteries in very localized regions and recover all the critical minerals that are inside the batteries. So the spoke part of our model is the first part and the hub is the second part. The spoke itself is meant to effectively shred the batteries from any form factor, any charge state and rendered into this intermediate product the industry calls black mass. And so the black mass substance itself is lightweight, it's easily transportable, and of course it's very inert, which means it's very safe. 
And so we take that intermediate product and we transfer it to the second part of our business, which is called the hub. And the hub is a very large scale centralized refinery to be able to separate out the individual constituent metals, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and others back into their salt forms, which is the lowest common denominator of the metallic form to be reintroduced into many supply chains. It could be repurposed into batteries or it could go into other industries as well. The challenges that are facing the industry right now is really being able to process all different types of chemistries. So as you can imagine, when people innovate on batteries, there's no standard chemistry, there's no standard form factor that the batteries exist in. And so at the early stages of innovation, there's a lot of different types of chemistries that different people experiment on. And we're happy to be able to process all those types of chemistries. So if I understand correctly, at the spoke, you're basically doing the pyrometallurgy, is that right? And then at the hub, you're doing the hydrometallurgy. So at the spoke level, what we're trying to do is we're trying to innovate away from pyrometallurgy. So pyrometallurgy is the existing incumbent form of recycling, whereby they take the nickel and cobalt processes that have been used for 30, 40 plus years to be able to pre-process the batteries into this intermediate black mass state. The idea is we're trying to get away from the high temperature processing, not only from a safety standpoint, but certainly from an ESG point of view, whereby when you heat up the batteries, you lose a lot of the material content. You also drive up the temperature, which means there's larger emissions of CO2, NOx, SOx, and others. And it's not very scalable from a total ESG story standpoint. That's really exciting to hear you're working on innovating that because I know both pieces of that traditional process of processing the batteries are really bad for the environment, which is tough because the whole point of batteries is to have a way of using energy that is better for the environment, but there's this really dirty piece of it. So you all are currently working on a new way to change the battery into black mass or you already have implemented a new way of doing that? Right, it would be the latter. So we are a commercial business right now. We've got three operating spokes currently in North America. The first is in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. The second is in Rochester, New York. And the third is now in Phoenix, Arizona. So that is a better style and a better method to be able to recycle batteries. I think one unique point is actually our continuous improvement in our innovation mindset. So the Kingston spoke itself, was what we call a stick built site. So effectively what happened was we found a warehouse big enough to put our equipment and we pieced together the equipment in wherever there was space inside the warehouse. And so it was very much custom built to that site. Rochester was our spoke number two. That was the first time we had a modular train. And what that means is we were able to package together all the equipment into these CCAN style containers, whereby it would be modular, easily deployable, and easily retrofitable. Phoenix is another step up from our, our innovation, whereby we can process full EV packs. So what that means is we're now able to pull process the entire underbody of the vehicle all at once. So what we're trying to get from there is increased efficiency, increased effectiveness. And certainly as we think about the future, you know, it's very labor intensive. It's very challenging to be able to to dismantle the batteries into modules or even cells to recycle, uh, such as the incumbent processes are. And so we see the continued evolution of these spoke technologies to be better, faster, and certainly more economic. And as our spokes get better and better, we don't forget about the earlier stage ones. We always go back and try to retrofit them and 
upfit them to the latest and greatest. And so to your point, we have folks that are operational. They are currently producing black mass, which is a key source of our revenue to date. And we're always going back to continue to improve and enhance the spoke network. So that what I'm understanding is you have innovation that kind of two of the pain points for battery recycling. One is the logistics, like starting out with the hub and spoke model. One of the biggest challenges traditionally for battery recycling is that shipping batteries to your hub or equivalent is so expensive and challenging, especially relative to then what you're able to get back out of it. So it's really hard to make it scalable, profitable. And so you're separating out the process where you change it into black mass and then are able to ship that so efficiently to your hub. But then it sounds like you're also innovating in the technology that you're using at each of those locations, at each of those steps of the process. I'd love to the extent you can say a little more about how you're taking the battery from the battery to black mass. At this point, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the, the innovation that you all have done there. Yeah, absolutely. So the spoke itself currently takes all types of batteries, you know, all different chemistries, all different charge states, all different form factors. And the idea is to be able to shred the battery in a submerged solution. So when the battery is submerged, it voids the immediate atmosphere of oxygen. And as the shredders engage, because there's no oxygen, the chances of a fire or explosion effectively don't exist. And so that, that's a key part of our IP to be able to process it in, in a proprietary liquid. And the liquid itself, based on density, specific gravity, can yield off plastics that get streamed off first from the battery pack. Then we take out the copper aluminum, which is heavy. And what's left is this black mass product, which contains all the cathode anode materials from the batteries which we take out and so a big part of our ip is rooted in the ability to submerge process and individually separate out the elements of the battery to render a high quality black mass so the consistency of the black mass is going to be the same from all our spokes and that's going to feed the hub which is that centralized mega refinery which operates at, at a very sorry uh just to pause there is that our hub is actually not operational yet and so we are Currently under construction, we have broken ground and we anticipate a 2023 operational timeframe. Cool. And so then what are you currently doing with the black mass at this point? Yeah, the black mass currently is being sold and that's our key source of revenue. But at a certain point, we will be consuming our own black mass to refine. That makes sense. And maybe it leads me to another question of how do you manage the tension between incorporating innovation in the process where there are new technologies that are getting developed all the time and then needing to move forward and build plants now? I think particularly thinking about the hub, I think the technology for processing black mass is changing a lot, but you have to invest in the large capital expenditures building that plant. How do you think about managing that tension? Yeah, this is a really good question, Andrew. And so if I start with our spokes, we've had to put a stake in the ground and prove out the technology. And so the concept we put together in Kingston, we knew was going to be a reference point for us to start. But as time goes by, we would develop bigger and better facilities on the spoke level. 
The hub level is a little bit of a different scale. So the hub itself publicly, the number is about $485 million US plus minus 15% for Rochester. And the order of magnitude there is much larger than a spoke, which would be in the order of $10 million each. And so to maintain our uh, competitive advantage and to really continue to push that first mover advantage, we really need to be able to put together a flow sheet that is suitable using best available technologies and methods today, knowing that we need to start producing the hub offtake products, the lithium carbon, nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, et cetera, and come back later for an optimization step. Also, there are additional hubs that we are planning, which will benefit from all the learnings that come from Rochester. And certainly as new techniques and methods are available, we'll look to implement them globally. In terms of technology that's being used at the hub right now, the Rochester hub currently uses a lot of off-the-shelf technologies. So we're effectively asking our suppliers to take the innovation and provide us the best technology that they have as well. So we're not taking too much technological risk from our end. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of what you're processing now, what is the breakdown between processing, say, batteries that have now reached the end of their useful life versus manufacturing scrap? Yeah, so to, uh, we have a few different segments. The first is consumer batteries. So this would be from your cell phone, your laptop, your golf carts, etc. We have a segment. Snowblower. Snowblower, yes. <laughs> we have a segment called manufacturing scrap. And so, uh, you know, whenever we manufacture cells, modules, uh, packs, there's always going to be offcuts. There's always going to be rejects that come from the line. And typically whenever a mega factory starts, you typically have very high levels of scrap. And that will ultimately reach an asymptotic minimum. We have another segment, which is energy storage systems. So these are battery backup and uh, level loading systems that exist. And the last but not least, it's the end of light batteries that you alluded to earlier. So the mix currently is a little bit higher on the consumer and manufacturing scrap side and a little bit lower on the end of life batteries. But over time, we'll see that shift towards more end of life batteries as the useful life EVs, for example, start to create more of that stockpile on the back end. I know right now, most batteries and cars are still in the prime of their life. And so they won't be ready to be processed for quite a long time. Related, I know a lot of batteries especially from EVs are going to end, aren't going to end their life in the U.S. Right now, a lot of them are ending their lives in other countries, in Europe, in Asia. How does that global nature of battery recycling affect the locations where you will choose to develop, you know, either your plans right now or what you expect will come in the future? Absolutely. And internal combustion engines, we're seeing the flow that you've mentioned. So there's certainly a migration pattern of vehicles from country to country. In terms of EVs right now, it's a little bit premature to say, you know, how far the EVs will move outside of one or multiple countries. And the rationale for that is because EVs require heavy investments in charging networks and infrastructure. And so for true migration of vehicles outside of the U.S. or Canada, for example, other receiving countries need to have the same level of infrastructure or a comparable level of charging to be able to be competitive with internal combustion engine vehicles. So today we are very much focused on North America, Europe, and APAC, where the demand currently exists for manufacturing scrap and end of life vehicles. But certainly, you know, as time goes on, we will monitor the movement of EVs very closely and figure out where we need to deploy additional spokes and hub capacity. 
yeah, it'll be exciting to see how that all develops. Hopefully there will be good charging coverage everywhere. I hope for that future. In terms of technology, just another question on that. What do you think are the most interesting developments in the battery recycling and material space right now? I would imagine with your role, you spend a lot of time looking at that. So I'm curious about what you are most excited about at this point. Yeah, absolutely. The aspirations are very high. There's a lot of investments flowing to the space and there's a lot of new players. So the big mystique right now is how things will pan out. There's a lot of new chemistries coming online, different combinations of materials, different form factors, different batteries. And so a lot of the space hasn't yet been defined yet, which is very exciting. We have a lot of new startup companies that we are tracking. There's a lot of mature companies even that are trying to get into the space. And so over time, maybe mid to late that decade, we'll actually see a little bit more consolidation and a little bit more focus in terms of the technologies and the form factors that will ultimately win. The other mega trend right now in terms of development is the deglobalization of the supply chains that I mentioned earlier, where everyone is recognizing the importance of being able to produce cells themselves in continent or in country. And so the development there is more in terms of a policy view where there's a lot more uh, federal, provincial, local level funding that's going into helping support the development of every part of this supply chain, every part of this ecosystem. And so hopefully we'll see a lot more progression as an industry. And in five or 10 years time, we'll see a little bit more maturity in terms of uh, the supply chain interactions. And I know this will be based on the chemistries of the batteries over time, but other than lithium, what what are all of the different minerals that you all are either extracting now or expect that you will be extracting and then putting back into that closed loop? Yeah, so lithium is definitely core elements. Uh, nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, manganese carbonate are other products that we produce. And those are the high value ones. There's a few others that come along as well. I think the key here is back to the urban mine concept earlier is that in a ton of spent lithium ion batteries, you actually have the requisite materials to produce the next batch of lithium ion batteries. And this doesn't naturally occur in the earth's crust. So by recycling batteries, you actually have the benefit of developing what we call co-products by producing many different products using the same process. And so there's certainly economies of scale and there's certainly economic benefit in terms of being able to leverage recycled content into new batteries. From a policy perspective in the EU, they have a battery directive mandating minimum recycled content going into the next decade, which is going to be helpful for our industry. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of global automakers, global OEMs being very astute into getting to a path where they can have blends of recycled content into the primary materials themselves as well. I know you all are developing or have developed a lot of partnerships with different players in the industry. Can you speak to that a little bit? Some examples, and you were just alluding to some just now. Absolutely. So Lifecycle is a very capital intensive company from a standpoint that we have to build hard assets and put them into the ground. So capital is very important for us from many different sources. And from a strategic lens as well, we have a lot of strategic partners that we're fortunate to be engaged with, such as LG Energy Solution, LG Chem, who are helping us with feed supply and offtake. We have another agreement with Coke, 
KOCH, Strategic Platforms, who also are providing capital, but helping us with book fabrication. And a recent deal that we announced is one with Glencore, which will help support the blending of primary materials with our recycled materials that go further down the supply chain. So we're seeing a lot of different partnerships right now emanate that are very interesting and all very complementary to each other. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the partnership with Glencore. I'm just curious about what you were just saying in terms of blending the different materials and then what the inputs there are going to be, what the expected outputs are going to be, how that will fit into what Glencore is doing potentially. Love to hear more about that. Yeah. So just in general is that we're Glencore's preferred recycling partner globally on recycled materials. And so the idea is we'll collaborate on jointly hunting for feed that goes into the spokes. We'll collaborate on sourcing black mass. We'll also collaborate on the offtake itself. So lithium nickel cobalt, blending that with their primary sources. And so it's really a very holistic agreement that we're putting together. And it's really leveraging their scale to be able to go after larger players. So for example, as you can imagine, MyCycle is 300 employees. Our bargaining power relative to someone who's been in the industry for a long time is, is a bit different. So tagging with Glencore is important for us to be able to have better leverage in, in bargaining with the OEMs and the cell makers who are further down the chain. That makes sense. And do you expect that these types of partnerships will be the main model for how Lifecycle grows going forward? We're certainly open to a lot of different organic and inorganic paths. And so it, it's really at the core of it, we're tied to where customers are going and what our customers need. And so if it's in the best interest of our customers, we will look at other strategic partnerships to enable that. Makes sense. For you personally, since joining Lifecycle, what has, what has your experience been joining a company in growth stage, helping to build it? Yeah. So I joined a year and a half ago as employee number 67. Today, we're well over 300 people and we're at track to double up again very soon. So, you know, sometimes I don't know who all the new people are, uh, which is interesting. And uh, it's really interesting to see the company move from a very amorphous state as we were a startup into a growth company phase and now trying to define where we want to be when we grow up into a more structured company. And so the challenge was really to ensure along the way that we don't lose the entrepreneurial spirit and all the tribal knowledge that was developed you know, five or six years ago. And so that's been very interesting for me. Also, as part of a high growth organization, we always try to identify, assess, prioritize, and execute on all opportunities that land on our desk. And so th there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of development for this industry and for our company itself. So it's very interesting and continues to be very exciting every day. What would you say are some of the successes you're most proud of today? Yeah, I think we've got a really good team. So we have two very awesome co-founders. We're based on core IP technology, and we've got a very strong commercial focus. To date, since August of 2021, we've raised about a billion dollars US, and we've been able to create some very high quality jobs. And so it's something, you know, very interesting for me personally to see this process and be a part of, and really be a part of building up something from the ground up. Yeah, you can imagine it's really rewarding. A lot of our listeners are MBA students or recent graduates, most of whom are considering careers in climate, often with startups. 
often trying to decide between whether to work for a startup at what stage or work in a different function, you know, work in banking for industrial companies or consulting, et cetera. So what advice would you have for students deciding among some of those different career paths? It's a very interesting question and it's very personal to many people. You know, for example, for me, when I graduated, I was really looking to get an ROI out of my MBA and really start my personal life. And so, you know, having a more stable job was probably more relevant for me, but the job market right now, it seems like there are, you know, a lot of vacancies in need of very high potential talent, such as your colleagues from Morton. And so I would say as your risk tolerance allows, try out the riskier option, knowing that you'll learn a lot. You'll be part of a great experience. In the best case, things go well, you can continue. In the worst case, there's always going to be a, a stable job out there for you. So, you know, never take a job you can always get. I like that. Never take a job you can always get. That's a great line. <laughs> well, is there anything else you'd want to share? Any reflections on life cycle, on the industry, on the, the current moment and climate? Absolutely. I think, you know, certainly when I was going through the MBA, there was a huge focus in my class around financial rewards and financial incentives post-grad. So a lot of folks tilted towards jobs that paid the most or had the most uh, prestigious job title. And so looking back, at least in the decade or so since I've graduated, a very important part is now more finding purpose in what we do. So are we creating something that's valuable for the world? Are we helping transform industries? Are we making people's lives better? And ultimately, are we leaving a better world behind for our, our families and future generations? And so I think there was a big shift, at least from my point of view, away from purely titles and comp, more towards purpose and building something. And so well, hopefully I want to leave you and your listeners with that in terms of some thoughts for career paths and next steps. I appreciate it. And how can our listeners find you, find Lifecycle? What are the best media forms to look you up? Yeah, we're very active on our website and on LinkedIn. We also have a lot of our leaders and our team members speaking at conferences, webcasts. They're available on Google and on YouTube. So feel free to view those and get in touch with us. We're very happy to engage. All right. Thank you so much, Wilson. Really appreciated having you on the podcast. Thank you, Adriel. Thanks to everyone for joining us on this episode of The Wharton Current. Special thanks to our guest, Wilson Law of Lycycle. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, lithium and battery recycling are particular favorites of mine in the climate space. We always love to hear from listeners, and I particularly encourage you to reach out if you want to chat about battery recycling or lithium. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Wharton Current. Thank you.